Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. Hey everyone, this is Vikram from Quantlayer. Thanks for listening to our eighth podcast. On this episode, Faisan and I take a deep dive into shorting, what it is, how it works, why it works, why people short, what the psychology of shorters is, and when shorting can go horribly wrong. We also talk about the bull and bear case around Tesla and how that's tied to controversy in short selling. We take a deep dive on NVIDIA, its IPO, and the company's gross margins and how that relates to the recent news of a potential Bitmain IPO filing. We also consider the current browser wars as they relate to crypto and continue our discussion around some benefits of the Bitcoin second layer lightning network. We also cover some interesting alerts that came through our platform the last week. Enjoy. Hey everyone, you have Quantlayer here, Vikram speaking. I'm joined by Faison, aka The Wizard. Hey Faison, how's it going? Good. How's it going? Good. We're both in New York this time. That's a pretty big change. There's been a ton of travel this summer for both of us. Yeah. Yeah. I've been in Toronto quite a bit and then uh, was recently in uh, Medellin, Colombia. Just got back from there. Now finally back in Brooklyn for a little while. Nice. How are you? Yeah. I was in uh, New Mexico, Portland. I think I was in DC at 1.2, but yeah, I don't have any travel plans coming up. So I'm glad to be back in New York, at least for a little while. Nice. There has been a ton of articles on short selling recently. And I think one of the reasons they've popped up a lot, and this happens in traditional media, traditional financial news media as well, is when a stock is at all-time highs, people will start reporting on how to buy it. When something's at all-time lows, people will start reporting on how to short it. So in the last week, I saw a ton of articles on like, why can't we short Bitcoin, how to short Bitcoin, things like that. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about the mechanics around shorting, because if you're outside of the investment community, it's either black magic or people think it's evil uh, and it's evil because you're betting against a company. Right. But the fact of the matter is, you know, companies fail, assets go down, markets change. Uh, we can only have functioning markets when we have instruments that allow us to manage risk and manage how companies and markets fail. So, you know, I thought it would just be useful to talk a little bit about what shorting is and how it works because it is really opaque. You know, there's articles out there, but I still don't think they're super clear. But anyway, so how does shorting work? So for those who aren't super familiar with the term, it's often thought about as a way for people to bet that an asset's price is going to go down. So how does that work? Uh, and it works through borrowing. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit. But let's first talk about just what even being long means. So if you own something, you're long that thing. So if you have long position, you own a particular asset. So say you're bullish on Microsoft and you want to own 100 shares of Microsoft stock. You go to an exchange and say, I want 100 shares of Microsoft at a certain price. So Microsoft right now is trading at $100. So you say, okay, I want 100 shares of Microsoft at $100. And we're just doing round numbers here because it's easy to talk about. So you put in your order and it gets accepted. 
And congrats, you're now the proud owner of 100 shares of America's first operating system company. So now what? There's not much you can do at this point. You're going to receive a small dividend. Right now at $100, it comes out to about $40 per quarter based on your holdings. But other than that, you can't do much more than that. You're just betting on price appreciation and continued success of Microsoft. But wait, what if you actually could do something more with your holding of Microsoft? So this is where this is where shorting comes in. And it's going to get a little weird, but I think if we just talk through it, it's a pretty simple mechanism. It's just not explained super well. So, okay. So now you say, so you own a hundred shares of Microsoft and say you have a neighbor that hates Microsoft, you know, maybe windows 95 ate their homework and they failed their final final English paper and had to be held back a grade. Or maybe they think Microsoft doesn't stand a chance against open source. Who knows? Uh, They can have any reason to be negative on Microsoft, but how can they actually take a bet that the stock is overvalued or is going to go down so they can short? And so here's the actual mechanism of how shorting works. So you own 100 shares of Microsoft. Your neighbor wants to short 50 shares of Microsoft. So you decide you want to lend them 50 of your 100 shares. And you're not just going to lend it to them for free. You're going to put an interest rate on there, a borrow rate. So let's just say it's 10%. That's really high, but it's just easy to do uh, mental math with it. So you're going to lend them 50 of your 100 shares at 10%. And... That means they have to pay you to borrow your shares. So this is the part that sounds really weird. Like, what does it mean to borrow shares from someone else? It just means what it sounds like. You own some shares, you're lending it to someone at an interest rate, like any other borrowing and lending mechanism. There's just nothing to really see because there's no physical stock to be delivered. But just imagine it that way, that you're going to borrow 50 shares from someone. I'm sorry, you're going to lend 50 shares to someone and you're going to get paid some interest on it. So now what happens? Your Microsoft hating neighbor shorts 50 shares of Microsoft. Say that over the next few months, Microsoft goes down to $80. Your neighbor is now in the green or they're profitable by $1,000. So that's $20 of profit times 50 shares because they had shorted it at $100 and now it's 80 So how do they realize this profit? Okay, so say they have appeased their hatred of Microsoft and they decide to close out their position. This means that they cover their position and they deliver their shares back to you. So what does that mean? So they borrowed 100 shares from you. At some point, they have to give it back, right? So the only way they can give it back is by actually covering what they borrowed and then delivering those shares back. So... What that gives them is they capture that $1,000 and then now they can make fun of you at the next neighborhood barbecue. Now, you aren't at a loss because you haven't sold your position. In fact, you might be in the red, but you've managed to generate some income by the lending process. So in fact, the stock can even recover and in the event that you're still in it, you'll benefit from that. But what happens if Microsoft doesn't go down? Okay, so this is where it gets pretty interesting. So say over the next few months, Microsoft goes to 120. That means your neighbor is now down $1,000 on the position plus any interest that they paid to you. If they decide to close the position, they have to purchase 50 shares of Microsoft to 120 in order to deliver the shares back to you since you are the one who owns them. And they would be down $1,000 less the interest. So in the real world, the situation that I presented is not Like, this isn't actually how it happens. In the real world, all this stuff happens through exchanges. And the real lenders themselves are the exchanges 
who profit from the borrow rates rather than you directly. So there are probably some ways to lend on an OTC or over-the-counter basis, but typically that's not how you'd short something these days. It's actually pretty easy for most things. Like you can, you know, say use Ameritrade or whatever, you can actually, you have to get approved for being able to short, but as long as they have borrow available, you can just say, oh, I want to short Microsoft, put the amount you want to short, click submit, and then you're good. So what also happens if someone is down on a short, like your neighbor who's down a little bit, and say you guys had agreed ahead of time, like, okay, if you're down more than $2,000, then you have to close it out. Like, that's just part of the deal. So banks and exchanges have that kind of uh, mechanism in place as well, where they can margin call you. And you probably heard the term before, margin call. If, uh, yes. Yeah. So basically- There's a movie that came out recently, I think, called Margin Call. It's, it's a very it? dramatic term in like- <laughs> Media. Right. <laughs> Basically, it's just saying, hey, you need this much of capital in your account to prove you can cover your short. And if you hit your margin call, then that's it. We're going to stop you out. You're done. So just to reiterate, so I understand correctly. So you have 100 shares of Microsoft. I borrow those uh, 50 of those shares from you. I sell them. And then the price of Microsoft goes up and I still owe you those 50 shares, which now instead of costing me $5,000, is going to cost me $6,000. So I'm down $1,000. And if you see that my account only has, let's say, $1,500, and it's not allowed to go below $1,000, that would be a situation where there's a margin call. Right, right. Okay. Uh, And, you know, some exchanges and banks can say, hey, if you're 10%, we're going to warn you if you're like 20% within your margin call, you know, 10% within your, they're going to do that. They're not just going to, you know, they can taper like your, your account too. So if you have a hundred thousand in your account, they can say, Hey, you can only trade like 10% of that now. Cause you're so close. Stuff like that. Right. But yeah, the, what you just presented is, is exactly how it works. Uh, it just happens through exchanges now. And then if you're long, it, it makes sense for you. I mean, I know we mentioned that the exchange is the one that captures the profit from the lending, but in the two party situation, if I was long, I would capture the upside of the growth in the stock because I get my stock back plus the lending rate. That's right. So yeah, we talked a little bit about the mechanics in terms of stocks and it's similar and probably even more dramatic in crypto. Uh, So the key thing to get out of all the mechanics stuff is that if you're shorting something, some other party is lending you the short at a borrow rate. At some point, you're going to have to purchase the shares back to deliver them to the party what your profit or loss is is dependent on the stock price you repurchase it at uh, less the borrow. Uh, in crypto, it's not easy to short Bitcoin, uh, let alone most alts. I think I've only seen maybe three on an exchange basis, uh, shortable uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and then maybe it was, uh, maybe it was Bitcoin Cash um, and potentially Ripple. I, don't, I think those were the ones I've seen before. So uh, also BitMEX, and a couple of the other exchanges are the ones who offer the ability to short. But outside of those, it's not easy. In fact, there's a crypto subreddit, I think, where people offer borrow rates for different cryptos. So these are people who own like a ton of, maybe not even a ton, of some crypto that they're willing to offer at some ridiculous borrow rate. So at these, ra- at these rates, they're high, like they're 30, 40, 50% sometimes, which reflects the volatility in the space. But at some point, these borrow rates just make no sense to pay. Yeah, I just had one question. So I know, I, you know, I'd been hearing in the news, I think late last year, that the the CME or the CBOE uh, started offering Bitcoin futures. How is that related in some way or is that a completely separate thing? 
Yeah, no, that's definitely related. Those Bitcoin futures have a high borrow rate on them. And I think I saw a number like 40%. I'm not, you know, don't quote me on that, but I think that's what I saw. And again, this the number reflects the volatility and the controversy around the asset. So okay. this is actually a pretty good lead into what I was going to mention. So just to give an example, a highly controversial, hotly contested stock like Tesla, where you have like, you have bulls arguing the stock is undervalued because the total market is way bigger than people think and bears think the stock is overvalued because they haven't actually delivered yet. Actually, Faison, you you understand the car market way better than me. You know, what are some of the reasons people are really bullish and bearish around Tesla? Yeah, speaking, you know, not from the perspective of like markets, but just someone that likes technology. One, I think Model 3 delivery rates notwithstanding, I think a lot of people are just very bullish on Elon Musk himself because he's, you know, with SpaceX and Tesla up until the Model 3, he's proven that he can bring stuff to market that no one else has been able to do, you know, something that's a fundamentally uh, better product. And so I think a lot of people just get excited about that. From the car perspective, there's a lot of fundamental reasons why electric cars are better. So if you look at, uh, you know, if you think that, okay, Tesla is going to be one of the big players in this market and electric cars are fundamentally better for, for a lot of reasons. Uh, one, th- because they don't have internal combustion engines, there's a whole bunch of moving parts that come with internal and combustion engines because you essentially have to take an explosion and make it make the wheel spin. And then you have all this emissions and uh, fueling infrastructure also that makes these cars very complicated. You have to get oil changes, transmission oil changes, a lot of maintenance stuff. And most of that goes away with electric cars. The other thing is because you can lower the center of gravity and not have this huge block in the front of the car, you can make it safer from a crash test perspective. You can build the entire frame of the vehicle differently. Uh, it handles better. And your just bill of materials should be a lot lower because you're putting a lot less stuff into the car. So, you know, there's definitely a lot of opportunity for electric cars. And I think a lot of people are bullish that Tesla is going to be the one to capture those markets. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a little bit track record of, Elon Musk having delivered with SpaceX and the way he got Tesla off the ground by where you had the, uh, what was it? The Tesla Roadster, which was really just a Lotus with Tesla batteries and motors, low volume, high price car to just basically get them off the ground. And then they went to something that was a premium priced, but higher volume car. And then now the Model 3, whereas most other electric car makers tried to do like a $30,000 budget car that was very unappealing. As far as bearish, I think the three big ones are, especially in recent times, Elon Musk has been really sort of personally volatile on like Twitter and just all the stuff he's up to. You know, a lot of people see like he's selling flamethrowers on Twitter or <laughs> a lot of the recent commentary he's made with the the, the Thai cave rescue. And I think a lot of investors don't like the idea of giving a guy like that billions of dollars. Yep. The second is just that if you look at how many cars Tesla makes, the fact that they're not profitable and what their stock is priced at, I think a lot of people get scared by just those numbers. It's like, how well would they have to do to justify their price? And then the third is, it's very hard to make a car. Like you can't just build a car factory and start churning out cars. Most car manufacturers have been around for a long time. The supply chains are multi-tiered from like raw materials to like your plastics to your sub assemblies to your assemblies and 
getting all of that in place is, is very time consuming, complicated, and not the forte of, you know, someone like Elon Musk, that's really good at, you might say product development, but manufacturing and supply chain is a, was a whole different thing. And so people are rightfully skeptical that he can get the model three out in the right volumes and quality needed. So I don't know. Those are my, that's my two cents. Gotcha. Just out of curiosity, how much was the Roadster and then how much was the next model on what's the model three supposed to get priced at? Okay. So the Roadster, I don't remember the exact pricing off the top of my head, but I want to say around $130,000, Okay, for a two seat sports car. So that was always going to be a sort of a third car in someone's garage. And it had a relatively limited range. So it was $130,000 as a toy car, very much a toy car. Mm-hmm. So that's it's a, quite a different bracket than something like... So the next thing that came out was the Tesla Model S, which again, these are rough ranges, but somewhere between seventy-five, eighty dollars to about $140,000. Now that sort of puts it in the spitting range of like your premium to high-end luxury sedans, like your 5 Series, 7 Series, S-Class. But that's a primary car, a daily driver. So even though the upper end of the Model S was priced the same as the Roadster, Mm -hmm. it's really in a totally different bracket because spending $100,000 on your primary vehicle is a much, much bigger market than, you know, $130,000 on a toy car. Right. And that market is pretty much dominated by, you know, people buy for brand and for what the car can do. And it's an emotional purchase more so than a purely like, how much am I saving on gas? Yep. So getting into that market was a good, good way to get down. And then the Model 3, the number that always gets thrown around as the anchor price is $35,000. And the reason for that is that the, I think the average price of a new car in the United States is around $32,000, $33,000, if I'm not mistaken. So $35,000 really puts you in, in the range of average new car purchases and well within the sort of upper end of premium and very low end of your luxury car brands, uh, like you know, like your 3 Series of a BMW. So that was the big deal that, oh, this is going to be a high volume car that's priced much more affordably. That'll be electric and nice. But a lot of the flack they're catching is they're understandably launching their high margin, high priced vehicles first. And so the upper end of the three series of the model three is uh, closer to $80,000. Gotcha. So that's been a lot of the complaints is like people were like, where's the mass market $35,000 car? Yeah. So the, I mean, the controversy around it is pretty fair. And because of that, you know, we can't say what the future is going to be like, right? But you'll have bulls and bears war over this stock if you get if you get bored of crypto twitter go look at tesla twitter it's uh just just elon musk right. like it just it's <laughs> him and people responding and the people that are like long and short i mean even the people that are long are like i think one of uh, i forget the name of the fund but one of the very long-term sort of funds that has been long tesla like they wrote an open letter asking elon to just like chill out <laughs> <laughs> on twitter <laughs> Yeah, so if you're bearish on Tesla uh, and you want to short it, you're going to have to pay pretty high borrow rates, uh, going back to what we were talking about before. So I'm going to quote S3 Partners. It's a, it's a third-party fintech data analytics company. So, uh, And I'll, I'll link to them in the show notes. But this is what they said around the, the Tesla short borrow rate. In October, that's October 2017, when borrow rates were below one, a 1% fee, the total financing cost of the Tesla short was less than $200,000 a day. 
Today, with rates on the existing 40 million shorts at 3.69%, it is costing short sellers $1.2 million a day to finance their short Tesla positions. If short selling continues to increase and rates hit the 10% fee level, it will cost between 2 and $4 million a day to finance the entire Tesla short book. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is a, 10% is a pretty high fee. I remember from back in my trading days, a pretty controversial stock where the borrow rate was like 2 3% was high. And a 10% is very high. And then yeah, I think the worst I've ever seen is probably like 25 or 33% something like that. I'd um, also be curious to see, you know, the, the two to $4 million a day number, that's a Tesla's market cap is give or take 50, 55 billion. Yep. So we're approaching like a 10th of a percent of their market cap and just daily shorting fees. Yep. I wonder how that compares to other, to other stocks. Cause that seems high to me. Yeah. That's a good observation. And the risk there is that because of a very high Borrow rate implies high short interest, of course. That means there's a lot of short shares that are short. That means when Tesla continues to go up like it has, it just gets more expensive to fund those shorts, which puts a lot of pressure on the shorts, and the shorts will end up having to cover, which will just drive the price even higher. So with highly controversial stocks like Tesla, as the stock prices go up or some and or some major event is coming down the line, the borrow rate interest rates go up and it just fuels the continual uh, performance of the stock. Of course, when when you're right, the stock will get crushed, and that's a different conversation. We'll just talk about that in a bit. But one other thing that uh, came to mind was GBTC. It's one of these Bitcoin trusts that trades on a stock exchange. So S3 looked into them as well. And so I'm going to read off a little piece from the Street article, which cites S3. But the cost to short Bitcoin hasn't been cheap, S3 found. Stock borrow costs have averaged a 10.2% fee for the year, and borrow rates are getting more expensive as borrow supply diminishes, S3 said. Since GBTC is more of a retail-owned stock than an institutionally-owned stock, new shorts are being charged an 18.5% fee. If short interest continues to climb, we should see new borrow rates hit the 50% fee level quickly. The cost to short the GBTC fund could rise higher than 50% and possibly near 100% by the time the first futures contracts trade, S3 noted. Many analysts have asserted Bitcoin is headed for a pullback when futures open for trading. 50 to 100%. You know, we had talked about the mechanics at the beginning and thrown out some numbers of how much profit you would take given some scenarios. So... In the situation of this, you know, possible 100% fee. So if I borrow $1,000 worth of GBTC from you to short it, and the fee is 100%, what is my game plan in terms of like, if, if it goes to zero, I'm in the course of a year, I still only break even because I've had to pay you that much in interest. Is Am I missing something? Yeah, no, you're totally right. Uh, the situations where there may be some reason to put it on is if there's some arbitrage play a super short-term play yeah or the super short like so you know i there's a hundred percent fee for the year but i think it's going to collapse in a month yeah and then the like numbers might make sense. I, the, in gbt there was a particular play i think you could like get long the underlying which is btc and then short gbtc and there was some kind of spread you could make money on okay or the flip side but basically there'll, there'll be like some 
short-term arbitrage type of thing where it makes sense. Yeah. Because yeah, those lending rates, you need to see very big movements very quickly. Otherwise, you're just going to get wiped out on fees, let alone even if even if the price goes down. Yeah, exactly. And that's something that fund managers have to manage, especially there's a lot yeah. of, there's some funds that are like short only and, you know, they spend a lot on just managing their shorts. So why is that? Like, what is the motivation to be short only or to be a shorter versus just, you know, picking things that you're confident in? Yeah. So the mindset of shorting, there's a definite specific psychology to it. And one reason is that it's very satisfying. And maybe this depends on person to person. Maybe some people find more satisfaction in being right long. Other groups of people find satisfaction in being right short. And I probably subscribe more to the latter. And the reason is, is that it takes, there's certain stocks that you do a lot of research into and you find some information that the market broadly doesn't understand or know about. And you can take satisfaction in that, you found that thing and you were able to profit on it by being short. So maybe maybe some company is experiencing a ton of competition from a really small, let's say like a really well-known company in the US is facing a ton of competition from a really small competitor in like Germany, right? And in order yeah. to find that out, maybe you need to know German. Maybe you need to have some connection to Germany, right? So you have now unlocked a piece of information that the market broadly doesn't know about and discounts because they don't have the extra edge that you have due to your uh, closeness yeah. to the, to the story. So that's a, f- a funny story about that, that, you know, smaller company competing with a big one is, uh, so we were talking about Tesla and you know how they announced that they're going to make these semi trucks. Yep. There's another company that is doing electric semi trucks called Nikola. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's sued Tesla for patent fraud. I think for two billion dollars. Really, so it's just a funny, and and the funny thing is, I'd heard about these Nikola trucks before the Tesla trucks actually. So they had been working on this. Yep. Um, which is funny with the name and the same product and and all that. So that, that is pretty funny. So that's one reason, and yeah, I guess you could do that on the long side as well. But when shorts work out, they work out really quickly. Like a stock can be down 40, 60, 80% due to competitive concerns, like in a very short amount of time versus a long where maybe, maybe they get bought uh, and that has the stock go up a ton overnight, but usually they take a little bit of time. Yeah. I mean, even a very successful business will take longer to grow than it takes to collapse. On. Exactly. Exactly. Another reason is you get to reveal fraud. So there's a term in trading called the angry short and it's very accurate because if you come across a company that is engaging in fraudulent behavior or some aspect of their business is fraudulent and you want to get short them, you want to be right because you don't want the market to see. I mean, you want the company to just get destroyed because they're engaging in fraud. I think that's a very natural way to feel about a fraudulent company, right? Yep. So like Enron you know, the housing collapse of 2008. These are examples of financial fraud that shorters benefited from. So another another less talked about benefit of shorting in psychology is that they bring real concerns about assets into the discussion. So I can be yeah. short something because I think that there's some unaddressed threat to a company in their threat model. But once that gets fixed, I'll cover so this helps incentivize teams to fix issues. And if not fix issues, then address and clarify them. 
I think there's this tendency, uh, you know, we alluded to earlier where people think shorting is just evil because you're betting against companies, but you're not shorting because you think the company is going to go bankrupt, right? You're shorting them because there's some aspect of them that just isn't working for them right now. And maybe that right. makes them go bankrupt. I mean, you, you could argue that if you want the markets to be like efficient, you, you need to be able to provide information on either side, like buying indicates that there's confidence and shorting indicates that there's less confidence and you need to be able to provide both signals. Yeah, exactly. And that's all it is. Yeah. Those are the main reasons people short. The other thing to know is that there are multiple types of shorters. It's not just people who expect an asset price to go down. So that's definitely a large part of the short selling market. The other group to consider are hedgers. And so here are some examples. So say you're a gold miner or an oil driller or someone else who deals with commodities on a day-to-day way. One way they manage that is by putting short positions on these commodities. So an airline will have a finance department that manages all its oil holdings with short positions because airlines, for example, have to deal with fluctuating oil prices. Gold miners will want to hedge against gold price volatility. Same thing with oil drillers. They're not betting the price is going to go down. They're just hedging their risk. Right. So I imagine Bitcoin miners at some point will want to limit their volatility. I mean, I'm sure they want to limit their volatility now, especially the large scale institutional miners. But at at really high borrow rates, it doesn't make any sense. Um, You're not going to pay like 30%, 50% to hedge your position that only moves like 10%, right? Right. So this will change over time as the industry matures. And I think like all this stuff will lead to lower volatility in the crypto assets. But right now, you know, it's just pretty interesting to watch. Oh, yeah. And I guess like one thing we didn't really talk about, like what are the downsides to shorting? Being wrong, right? Yeah. There's an infinite amount outside of a big margin call. There's an infinite amount of money you can lose by being short. Right. Because if you're long, you can only lose the total price of that stock. Yep. But if you're short, you can lose the entire amount that it, you know, it moves against you. Right. So if you, if you bought a penny stock and it goes to a thousand dollars, you're in really rough shape. Yeah. And just psychologically as humans, it's really hard to manage that risk unless you are very diligent about it. So like you buy a thousand dollars or buy $10,000 on Microsoft. If Microsoft goes to zero, you've, like you said, you only lose that 10,000. If you're short $10,000 on Microsoft, you don't know what your downside is. If it goes to 200, yeah. 300, 500. That adage of like only invest what you can afford to lose doesn't apply if you're, sh- you know, shorting. If you don't know how much you could lose. Yeah. Right. So uh, there's some pretty common shorting fails. So if you're short something and so say you're short a company and then that company gets bought. Well, there you go. You just blew your short just blew up because, uh, you know, m and usually happens at a at a premium, premium. Right. Yeah. Also, just being wrong, like. If you were getting heavy into shorting banks in 2008 because you saw that, you know, Bear Stearns collapsed and you thought that was going to happen to everyone, you probably would have made some money in 2008. But in 2009 and 2010, when the market started recovering, you would not have. And then uh, there was this weird phenomenon where you could be correct, but because so many other people are short as well, you actually don't profit, you know, the short cover. So like people are, say people are short into a quarter because they think it's going to be a really bad quarter. The quarter happens. Yep. Nothing else has really changed with the company. People just wanted to get short the quarter because they thought it was bad. 
And then the stock isn't down that much. It's like down three or 4%. And people are like, all right, I'm going to take my profits. They start covering. Suddenly the stock is up, right? And because the stock is up, people freak out and start covering more. And then suddenly it's, I, we, we saw this all the time where there's this weird behavior in like 2007 to 2008 in semiconductor stocks where they would miss their quarters, but then trade up like 10%. Uh, it was bizarre. So yeah, that, you know, I thought it'd be helpful to just talk a little bit about shorting and, you know, see how it might compare to Bitcoin. You know, there's no M&A in Bitcoin, like being wrong with on Bitcoin would mean something else. You know, probably things that we haven't thought about that much or haven't really, aren't able to predict, let's say. Say overnight, there's some massive lightning network adoption, right? Like it triples, quadruples. I don't know if the price would go up a ton immediately, but it probably would rise because it indicates that people are locking up their Bitcoin in the in the lightning network and it's working or whatever. So yeah, yeah, we'll see how that stuff plays out. Another interesting thing, we talked a little bit, these miners, professional miners, institutional miners. Uh, I saw a Bloomberg article recently about how Bitmain, these guys make ASICs for a ton of, not actually not a ton of cryptos, for a handful of cryptos. Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Decred, I think they announced recently. So they are mulling an IPO. And I thought this is kind of interesting because like every time I hear about Bitmain, NVIDIA always comes to mind. NVIDIA is a GPU company based out here in the US. So they went public. So NVIDIA went public in 1998. In the nine months ended, I'm sorry, I think they went public in 1999, but the nine months prior to them going public, they were at 92 million in revenue. So latest quarter, they did 3.2 billion. Right. So pretty massive growth over 20 years, over 20 years, though. And their IPO, there was 12. It was a pretty like, I mean, back then, you know, maybe it was decent size. But today people might scoff at it a little bit. It was $12 per share and they raised 42 million from the public. A drop in the bucket these days. And just just a fun fact, if you invested in 100 shares post IPO in NVIDIA, so that would have been uh, right after they went public, about $2,000. As of November of 2017, this estimate comes from Investopedia, but as of November 2017, that money reinvested with reinvested dividends would be worth $274,231 today. So NVIDIA is a pretty interesting stock. Uh, we followed this stock pretty closely and it basically traded on pricing. People tended to not care about revenue as much as they did about pricing. And the reason pricing was so important is because it affected their margins dramatically. A small few percent change in pricing could affect their margins pretty pretty severely. Uh, and they actually quote that in their IPO filing. So even though it's 20 years old, it still matters. And I'll just read it here. Right. For example, in the quarter ended July 26, 1998, the company experienced substantial declines in gross margin from the previous quarter due to increased competition from new products introduced by both the company and its competitors for the 1998 design cycles. So I don't know what was going on in GPUs in 98, but them and my guess maybe AMD had a turf war around that time. Yeah. I think that's when I bought my first GPU. It's oh, like really? Voodoo 3 something. Yeah, as I vaguely remember it. It was pretty, you know, back then, pretty specialized item. And it, I think it had like 32 megs of, <laughs> of uh, it, it something ridiculous yeah, now. Right. But so over the years, they've been able to 
it was a pretty cyclical stock for many years. And then over the last few years, it's just been doing really, really well. And I think it's not just because of crypto and GPU demand. Like if you just forget that, maybe that's the underlying factor. But if we're just talking about financial metrics, they've had really favorable pricing and really good margins over the last few years. So for example, 2014, gross margin was 54%. 2015, it was 56%. This jumped to 60% 2017. And now it's nearly 65%. So this is a hard hardware yeah. company. It's in pure software, you see super high margins, but this is a hardware company. And it's pretty awesome to have margins like these. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about their hardware product is that it's not really like directly replaceable. Uh, and what I mean by that is like, you've had like, you know, AMD makes GPUs as well. And with CPUs and with GPUs, it's almost like generational. Like NVIDIA will launch something and it might capture a little more market share if the pricing is good than if AMD launches something that's like better pricing for most of the performance. It might swing a little bit of market share that way. Mm-hmm. But especially in the, like, I feel like in the last decade, you've seen more, not just like, oh, what's your performance per dollar, but like functional specialization. So NVIDIA invented their own low level language like CUDA to help people write, you know, stuff for their GPUs. Uh, They've expanded into like, not just a GPU, but like this uh, physics rendering uh, device. And then I think now both both of them have it, but they were the first to roll out the ability to like paralyze, G, like have multiple GPUs and just paralyze them in consumer grade hardware. So it was a lot of things that it wasn't just about like performance per unit of power, but some fundamentally different or structurally different uh, capabilities. And the competitors always catch up and it goes back and forth, but that maybe that's had a factor in the price or margins. Yeah. The way you described it is basically just highly specialized tech. So it's so, their software layer is actually super important for their hardware. Yeah. And maybe machine learning and AI stuff also has a lot to do with it because basically all the training for these models, a lot of that's uh, very GPU intensive. Yeah. So I, I just wonder how all this stuff will play out for Bitmain. Uh, they have gone, you know, they've only been around for a few years now and they've gone from nothing to billions in revenue in a very short amount of time. So if you compare that to NVIDIA, who it took a much longer time, um, albeit in a different market. So this Bloomberg article, I'll just read a little piece from it. In an interview with Bloomberg News, Wu, that's Jihan Wu, uh, said Bitmain booked $2.5 billion of revenue last year and that he and his co-founder, Mikri Zan, or Zan, together own about 60% of the business. Well, Bitmain has few direct comparables, applying a multiple similar to that of publicly traded chip makers like NVIDIA and MediaTek would give the company a valuation of about $8.8 billion. So yeah, they've benefited 100% from crypto, Bitcoin in particular, by developing custom ASIC. And then as they have been developing other custom ASICs for other coins like Bitcoin Cash and Decred. I think there was a rumor, if, unless it happened, I, don't, I didn't keep up with this, if they developed one for Ethereum too. But yeah, the ASIC versus GPU stuff's pretty pretty interesting as well. Yeah, I'm not, uh, you know, obviously non-electrical engineers don't understand it down at the structural level. But, you know, with the ASICs, they're very specialized for the specific caching algorithm they're trying to solve for. Whereas, you know, GPUs are, they're, while much more specialized than CPUs, they're still basically a more general architecture for just massively parallel computation. And so they're never going to be as good at any specific algorithm as, you know, ASIC design just for that. Yep. And the interesting thing there is, you know, how that 
gets into the concept and notion of scarcity around a digital asset. Like if it's easy to mine something, not that GPU mining is easy, you know, you're still putting up capital to do it, but ASIC mining certainly is harder. The, it, it's more capital yeah. intensive. It's more technically intensive, et cetera. Yeah. I guess you could say the probability of being able to find exponential gains, like what happened with Bitcoin, you know, the mining capacity of a modern ASIC is, I don't know, how, maybe millions, some huge multiple compared to, you know, a laptop back in 2011. Yep. And so the dynamic there is probably very different from something that is much more constrained in how much exponential growth you can have in the, for the individual. Yep. Like per dollar, I guess, would be the metric to base it against. Right. So one of the, you sent me this from your, uh, from your newsletter was the Opera versus Brave Browser yep. Wars. And I'll quote, uh, is it time for the crypto browser wars? The once beloved Opera browser is now a scrappy underdog. It holds a 3.2% market share today behind Firefox at 5.4%, Internet Explorer at 6.1%, Safari at 13.5%, and Chrome at 55.2%. Those numbers could see some change as Opera has just released a crypto wallet built into the browser itself. This would allow users to interact with decentralized applications natively, store, send, and receive crypto and ERC-20 tokens in the browser, and does not require third-party plugins or wallets. For the mobile version, biometrics could function as a password. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I guess the implication here is that by them being first to market on some of these features they'll be able to recapture some uh, market share. I have a few thoughts on that. I think I am old enough that Netscape was my first and you know first browser and when the only options were Internet Explorer and Netscape. And then I had Windows for a long time, so the default was Internet Explorer. And then when Firefox came out, it was a pretty, it felt like a big jump because I think Internet Explorer hadn't been getting much better because they didn't have to. And then Firefox brought some competition to the market. And then when Chrome brought out, you know, the one process per tab, I jumped over to Chrome. And then what you saw happen once you had multiple browsers and browsers supporting different levels of standards was, I think Chrome captured a lot of market share because they just pushed ahead of everyone else because they were okay with putting stuff into their browser that wasn't even necessarily... Uh, the other browsers hadn't caught up to and people started, you know, building stuff for Chrome. And for a long while, it became much more, it basically solved all the problems that Firefox did, but was much more performant. I don't know if that's true anymore. I think Firefox rebuilt their rendering engine using, like I want to say like something called Servo and Rust, but I might be completely uh, off. My issue with Opera is that nowadays... Like between Firefox, you know, Edge and Chrome, there's a bit of discrepancy in the features they support at the cutting edge, but they all move within lockstep when it comes to the stuff that like your average user cares about. And stuff related to crypto is being onboarded so quickly that I don't know that op like people are going to switch to Opera because it has fun functionality that they don't have in Chrome and they don't want to get from a Chrome plugin. So I, I don't know that the UX is compelling enough to bring people over. I think you're just going to have those, you know, Safari and IE percentages are just are probably just people that use the browser that's by default. And then Firefox and Chrome is more of a conscious choice. But I don't, I don't know what is that compelling about having a browser with built-in support versus plugins or even just, you know, 
like Ledger had Chrome apps for a while and now they have their standalone, um, like, you know, app. So what are your thoughts? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm for them trying this to see, you know, it's a nice experiment. Let's put a crypto wallet in your built into your browser and see, you know, see what happens. There's probably security things that'll come up. There'll be, you know, UX considerations or whether people will use it or not. But I probably agree. Like, it's not like people will run to the browser to this browser to use it. There'll probably have to be some reason to use it. So I guess it lets people store and send and receive crypto. So I guess what is this, does it serve as a wallet as well? I don't know. I, I, I'd like to see what it actually looks like because yeah. my initial reaction. For me, it's not a compelling enough case to yep. switch browsers and all that comes with that. Now, I wonder if there's a case where you might want to use two browsers. I don't, the only reason I use multiple browsers is th- with development. Like I'm testing different functionality across different browsers to right. make sure it's supported. But there's really no reason for me to say, hey, I want to use Firefox for this one thing because I like its feature better. Yeah. So I guess I did use Opera Mini for a while on mobile just because it was a lot better than the native offering. So unless it's, it's, but it needs to be a pretty significant delta to, for people to go to like a third-party browser like that. Yeah, the skeptic in me is probably thinking like there's some major security concern around this. And I don't know what exactly, but that's what it seems like. So we'll see. Worth watching. Yeah. All right. So, uh, you know, once again this week, we had a bunch of interesting alerts uh, come through in our system. So we can discuss some of those. Now, in one of the previous talks, we had talked about, you know, second layer networks and a big milestone was we've been seeing pretty steady growth of the Lightning Network. It crossed 80 BTC in capacity. It's well over 2,500 nodes now. So that's it's an interesting metric. It'll be a great milestone when it hits a 100 BTC. Yeah, it's really taken off. Like it was steady at I think it climbed very quickly to like the 20 BTC level. It was like 25 for a little while. Then it went to 30 pretty quickly. And then it went to 50 in like a few days. And now it's, at, I think you said 80. Is that yep. right? Yep. Okay. That's tremendous growth. So I wonder what the deal is there. It's definitely worth investigating. Any investor who wants to hold the BTC and has some interest in the Lightning Network, like this is an example of an alert that really perks your ears up. Yeah, because, you know, something interesting I heard recently about the Lightning Network and I want to investigate it more before I think we should actually have a whole podcast about it because it's it's super interesting. And I'll get your thoughts here, too. Sure. This is something you brought up too, like a lot. I think you had read. I don't know. I remember which book it was, but it was uh, the PayPal founder was talking about chargebacks and how much companies spend on handling fraud. Oh, yeah. I think it was Founders at Work by Jessica Livingston. Yeah. So it's Max Levchkin. So a a lot of these companies spend uh, quite a bit on chargebacks, fraud protection, things like that. I think Zappos as well, like the shoe shoe company. Mm-hmm. So one thing that the Lightning Network offers is a trustless way that's a hundred percent secure to handle transactions. And I don't understand it enough yet to explain like how why, but let's just assume that that's the case even though it's a, it's, it sounds like a pretty fantastical case, but let's just assume that's the case. That should ad- drive adoption by all, a lot of these companies that spend a ton of money on chargebacks and fraud prevention. Because if they, they can just lo- 
they can no longer spend that, you know, their, their profits will go up. So uh, anyway, this is, it's worth looking at. It's gone from twenties to thirties, fifties, eighties, like within this month. It's just, uh, it's pretty crazy growth. So would love to know what's going on. Yeah. So if any listeners out there who actually have a better understanding of this, uh, would love to hear from you all. Yeah. Another one that came through that I thought was, uh, interesting was, uh, so, you know, Coinbase has been making a bunch of, uh, acquisitions and, uh, I think they bought a company called Keystone and a few others. And their spokesperson basically said, you know, Elliot Southers told Bloomberg, they were approved to acquire the ownership of the licenses of the three companies. Okay. But then the vice president of communications later said that it is not correct to say that the SEC and FINRA approved Coinbase's purchase of Keystone <laughs> because SEC was not involved in the approval process. <laughs> the SEC's approval is not required for the change of control application. <laughs> so basically, you know, a Reddit comment. So Coinbase talks to someone at the SEC who gave Coinbase the thumbs up, but that thumb had no authority. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> so just a little bit of, you know, drama in terms of, they put out one statement, turns out it was the other case, and maybe they got an okay, but it's from the wrong person. So just fun stuff to follow just popped up on my feed. So I thought I'd share. This is like the first time I've ever seen financial news just wrong so often. <laughs> like Bloomberg and you know Wall Street Journal, there would be some vetting process, but now like there this this industry crypto industry is like so full full of like so many rumors things just fly around like how did they how did this happen like how, how would you announce this you know i don't know it's yeah. just really funny actually i'm just uh, i was just i was just clicking through the and right now and another just a you know telegram thing popped up uh, one of the admins for vchain is just saying that you know token swap service on wallet will start in august you have two options move to exchanges once they announce their token swap date or two wait for token swap service and wallet nothing else needs to be done so i thought this was interesting because <laughs> one of the things we always see is like people asking when is the exchange going to support this when are the exchange going to support that and so it's interesting yeah. to see that you know again telegram is where a lot of this stuff is getting announced first yeah it's pretty awesome that we get so much uh out of those telegram alerts, they really, uh, they really like this example you just gave right now. There's always yeah. something popping up. With yeah. Them. Another thing that I thought was interesting. So obviously we've talked in the past about market manipulation and it's a big concern that people have is that there's a lot of market manipulation going on because with a lot of these coins, I don't think it takes that much capital to do that. But now, uh, so CoinFloor, which is an exchange that has a bunch of subsidiary exchanges is working with this uh, company called Trading Technologies International. So they're going to be using some uh, machine learning based market manipulation detection that has, I guess, been used in traditional finance. So we're seeing some of that stuff come to crypto exchanges as they sort of become more professional operations. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, also, I'm all for yeah. uh, more professionalism. Yeah, exactly. Another fun one, Fed chairman, cryptos have no intrinsic value. Uh, <laughs> okay. So make what you will of that. And then, uh, oh, there was another uh, congressional hearing on crypto today at 2 p.m. Uh, I actually saw that because uh, we the link just came through in our feed. Oh, nice. So I'll have, you know, go watch that later and see if anything interesting came out of it for next week's podcast. 
Yeah, I saw a tweet about that hearing. There were like two. There was the Ag Committee, Agricultural Committee. I always thought it's kind of funny that they do the cryptocurrency stuff. I don't. Maybe it has to do with commodities or something. Uh, and then there was some financial uh, means committee hearing on cryptocurrencies. And Brad Sherman again. I think we talked about him on our first podcast, but he's a Democratic member in California. And he's heavily against crypto. And I think he said something like U.S. Americans should be banned from buying and mining. He's crypto. the one that got shit from everyone for asking dumb questions in the first hearing, right? <laughs> to just put it bluntly. Uh, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but he's uh, he's angered a lot I of people. I think I know and, what you're talking about. I just I mean, remember he has a big goofy smile when he asked dumb questions. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't even know how you would... How they could do that. If they, even if they wanted to, I don't know how they could do it at this point. Yeah, that's, that's the guy I'm thinking about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then the last thing that I had, again, this is something I, you know, we saw the price move yesterday. And then this popped up in our feed. Apparently a billion dollars entered the market in about an hour or nearly half a billion dollars. But that's what caused the almost thousand, you know, 700 plus dollar price spike. Right. And some 55 million in five minutes at 640. Wow, that's crazy. Cool. Um, yeah, I know some some of you guys have asked us about our when is the big drama in small cap land segment coming back. It's coming back next week, so yep. stay tuned. Yep, and we'll be also talking about IOTA in detail. Yes, very, uh, very controversial. Probably, I don't know, what do you think, Tesla or IOTA? What's more controversial? Uh, in the crypto space, I would say IOTA. Well, I would say Tesla is more controversial because I think there's more legitimate positions on both sides. Yeah. <laughs> and we will explore what that means more next week. Right. <laughs> All right. Talk to you soon. All right. Hey, everyone. This is Vikram again. Thanks for listening to us. If you're an exchange, a trader, or working on a crypto project, get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter at QuantLayer. That's Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R. Or email me at Vikram at QuantLayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M, like Monero, at QuantLayer.com. I will write back. Thanks. Thanks.